Right now on Tech Radio, get on your bike. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RT Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 981. This week is a special. We're talking about the humble bicycle, which might have a key role to play in Ireland's transport system in the future. But what are the challenges to implementing new transport systems and what can be done to get more people on their bikes? This week, Evan Boyle, a researcher with MARI, the Science Foundation Ireland Research Centre for Energy, Climate and the Marine, explores what it will take to make people embrace pedal power over petrol. This story originally appeared on the MARI podcast, which you can find on Spotify, and we'll post a link for that in the show notes. Enjoy. Brainstorming the future often tells us more about the present than the future. And we can see this by looking at past visions of the future. Sometime during the 1890s, a French artist named Albert Robita, he finished a painting called Leaving the Opera in the Year 2000. It was set in the skies above Paris, and the painting depicts the well-to-do citizens of the time travelling home in a variety of flying vehicles. Now at this time in the 1890s, there had been a lot of technological advances, but there weren't yet any airplanes that could fly, or even cars that could drive. And the flying vehicles in Robita's painting, they don't look anything like the airplanes of today. They look more like flying fish. They've got fins rather than wings. They have a fish-like snout, and eyes on the sides of their heads, and long tapering tail. And the vehicles they best resemble really is the submarine, which was widespread during the 1890s, though mostly for military purposes. During the actual year 2000, while there might have been some super-rich who who flew home from the opera, most people would have used more down-to-earth forms of transport. And the vision of everyone flying home in fish-like vehicles is a technology vision that says a lot about the 1890s, but not so much about the year 2000. Zooming up to today, how do people today think about future transport possibilities? And a few years ago in UCC, we asked uh, a mixed audience of different backgrounds and ages uh, two questions. Firstly, how do you commute now? And second, how do you commute in the future in the year 2030? And the context for the discussion was climate change and how Ireland could transition away from almost complete dependence on fossil fuels. And in response to the question, how do you commute now, 40% of our responders said they walked or cycled. So we had three times the average of walking and cycling in the room. And this number alone suggests very high levels of awareness of sustainability. Of the 50% who drove, the vast majority had a petrol or diesel car, and nobody drove a fully electric car. So lots of room for improvement there. And when we asked how they imagined commuting in the year 2030, there was great enthusiasm for driving an electric car, so much so that there was a notable reduction from 40% down to 25% in the share of people who said they'd walk or cycle. And there was some surprise in the room at this result. And the participants in our exercise, they didn't need to be reminded that walking and cycling are by far the, the most sustainable forms of transport. Less technology equals a lower environmental footprint, and it's better for your personal health than for the community well-being. 
but when we'd asked them, a majority had chosen more driving as their preferred future form of transport. They chose the more technology option. Now, while electric cars do have smaller environmental footprint than their petrol and diesel equivalents, more driving equals lifestyles that are more disease prone and, and sedentary, and more driving equals communities that are more dispersed and car dependent. So our two questions, how you commute now and how you commute in the future, revealed to our participants how technology can dominate thinking about the future. And the future preferences of more driving wasn't anticipated. But we did have a great discussion about the sustainability of different forms of transport. Next, we move to the Netherlands for our second letter, I, for inspiration. My name is Chris Bruntlett, and I am uh, the Marketing and Communication Manager at the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Uh, and I've had the immense privilege of doing so for the past three years. Um, we're a, a public-private network based in Utrecht in the Netherlands. Um, and we specifically exist uh, to export the knowledge and expertise uh, in the field of cycling from the Netherlands to cities and regions around the world. So the Netherlands is famously the only country in the world where there are more bicycles than people. It's 23 million bicycles and growing for 18 million people. Um, but perhaps what's more uh, astounding is the uh, distances that those cycles are used. So uh, at last count, it was about 17.6 billion kilometers per year across the entire Dutch population. Uh, that's over a thousand kilometers per capita. So that's for every single man, woman, and child in this country, an average of a thousand kilometers. And within teenagers and other demographic groups, including the elderly, that number is actually closer to 2,000 kilometers. Um, so cycling is uh, done by virtually everybody, regardless of their age or ability. Um, it's famously the only country in the world, or one of the few countries in the world, where there's more women than men cycling. Uh, about 56% of cyclists here are female, uh, which speaks to how uh, safe and comfortable it's been made for everybody. Uh, and uh, huge segments of the aging population, including uh, the 65 to 75 demographic is actually the one that cycles more than any other adult demographic uh, here in the Netherlands. So there's this uh, reverse age gap and a reverse gender gap that we're not used to seeing in other places because um, in those places, the infrastructure and the policy does not exist and cycling is largely only done by the fit and the brave and, and the people willing to rub shoulders with motor vehicles. That's great, Chris. Uh, so I've been reading up on some of the work coming out of the Dutch Cycling Embassy, um, and there's so many noted health benefits, particularly um, with relation to young people. I was wondering if you could just talk us through some of those. Yeah, these are all the the unexpected uh, byproducts of building physical activity into people's daily travel habits, and they don't have to carve out time to go to a gymnasium or play a sport. Um, they're moving their bodies just by getting from house to school and, and to friends' houses and to other activities throughout the day. Uh, and it's not an accident that uh, Dutch teenagers are among the healthiest and happiest in the world uh, with the lowest levels of, of obesity and uh, antidepressant usage. Uh, it's not to say that it's a, a silver bullet and a simple fix, 
Um, but there's, there's a definite correlation there between um, the freedom and autonomy they have to move around their city without mom and dad driving them around uh, and the amount of physical activity they get uh, and social activity that they get. There's so many benefits with cycling. Um, but one thing here in Ireland that people often say is that it would be a great country uh, if only we could put a roof on it. Could you speak to some of those challenges in terms of weather um, and active travel? Whenever you talk about cycling, you always get the same kind of um, arguments, uh, whether in good faith or bad. And, and let's be fair, sometimes they're made in bad faith. People who don't want things to change will just throw out uh, excuses why we shouldn't be, in this case, building better cycling infrastructure. But the, the research, the academic research and the experience of a country like the Netherlands, which gets its fair share of uh, rain and, and heavy wind uh, blowing in off the North Sea, uh, tells us that if that infrastructure is in place, if a reliable network is in place that gets you from A to B to C in your city, then you're much less likely to um, wimp out and, and, and choose another mode of transportation and, and abandon the bicycle when the going gets tough. Um, I've seen here firsthand that in driving rain and heavy wind and scorching sunshine uh, in, in even in uh, snow and sleet. Uh, the cycle tracks are just as busy as they, they are on, on the temperate days. It's just, it comes down to, uh, well, a, uh, an attitude that uh, the Dutch saying goes, you're, you're not made of sugar. Uh, and that there's no such thing as weather, bad weather, only bad clothing. And so if you get the right rain jacket and, and potentially rain pants um, for just a short cycle ride in the city, we're not talking about long distance cycling. Uh, you can often uh, get there be far easier and quicker than you would uh, on a bus or, or by other means of travel. So. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, we have to be careful not to allow those silly little debates over weather or hills or, or culture to derail what is um, a, a bigger conversation about uh, the opportunities we provide our citizens to move around their cities uh, uh, of their own fruition. That's not to say that everyone can ride a bicycle, but not everyone can drive a car and uh, we need to keep that in, in mind when we're uh, developing these these uh, changes to the streetscape. And finally, Chris, what from the Dutch experience is important for making all this happen in Ireland? Well, we so we at the Dutch Cycling Embassy always talk about a three pronged approach. It's hardware, software, and orgware. Um, and you cannot simply focus on uh, one of those three things. You have to bring a balance into your approach if you're going to build a more cycle-friendly city. The hardware is the, the bricks and mortar, the physical infrastructure you're building. The software is the, the policies and the, uh, the encouragement and the, uh, the uh, support that you offer people uh, to make that cultural shift towards uh, a more cycling-orientated society. And then the orgware is kind of the cooperation between government and non-government agencies to make all of that happen. So we can't just build it and they will come and assume that they will come. Uh, we have to uh, provide people with uh, inspiration, insights. Uh, if you can't see it, you can't be it, as they often say. 
glimpses of, of how a bicycle might fit into their life, not as a 100% replacement to the car, but um, for, for shorter, more practical journeys to the corner store, to friends' houses, to the bars or restaurants or uh, where you're going in, in, <laughs> on a daily basis um, through video, through photography, through uh, any form of media that we can get out there and, and show them that there is alternative. Because um, for the past 50 years or so, the bicycle has been um, basically brought to the point of extinction by just driving uh well pardon the pun but <laughs> yeah driving driving our cities to, towards the car and people have forgotten what the bicycle is and what it's capable of and we have to kind of bring it back from extinction um uh, to show them what's possible and i think the netherlands is one country that really never stopped cycling uh so we can we can use the the photographs and the videos and the the example that's been set here of uh, showing people, yeah, that a, a, a bike is, a, a, well, it's freedom, it's autonomy, it's mobility, it's all the things that the car uh, companies uh, market to us, but it uh, actually exists and uh, you won't be sitting in traffic, you won't be uh, stuck with uh, big uh, bills for the car and the insurance and the parking and the, uh, the gasoline. Uh, the car, the bicycle, truly is freedom uh, if you do embrace it. And uh, but we do have to build the infrastructure for it. it. It's not enough to just focus on the marketing or focus on the infrastructure. We have to bring both in a, a cohesive uh, package. We move now from the Netherlands back to Ireland to PhD researcher Vera O'Riordan. She has recently published a paper with Fionn and other colleagues in Marae in the journal Transportation Research Part D, Transport and the Environment. The title of the paper is How and Why We Travel, Mobility Demand and Emissions from Passenger Transport. And it was the initial impetus for this episode. Vera joined me over Zoom from Boston where she is currently based with the Stockholm Environment Institute. The third letter is K for keys. The key challenge with transport emissions in Ireland is that 20% of all our greenhouse gas emissions, so that includes both carbon dioxide and methane, come from transport. So that 20%, half of that is from passenger transport, people traveling around in cars, getting around in public transport and cycling and walking. Some areas are easier to decarbonize than others, and some are much harder. So decarbonizing and greening up aviation and our flights is actually quite hard to do. But passenger transport, where people are getting around by cars or by public transport or bike, it's supposed to be taking up a greater share of the emissions reductions. And it's something that we have solutions to right now, but they're quite hard to implement because every day people take journeys using fossil fuels. And it's a big ask to ask people to change their ways on an individual level. And there's a lot of different aspects to the whole passenger transport problem. How do people get around so they can work, they can go to school, they can do their shopping? So and, and beyond environmental reasons, what other issues can encourage other forms of transport? The cost of transport is really high for people. So we really need to consider alternatives as well. Not just because they're better for the environment, 
but also because the cost of operating your own private vehicle is actually really high. And as Ireland is moving more towards people living in towns and cities, we really need to start thinking about how we service those passenger journeys. So the key issue of passenger transport emissions in Ireland is that at the moment, 82% of our passenger kilometres are currently met by private cars and only 1% is met by walking and cycling. The National Travel Survey actually looked into some of the key challenges facing people when considering uptake of cycling. And what they found is that 30% would cycle if there was access to safer cycling routes and cycling specific routes. And that really highlights a key issue with cycling at the moment and the poor uptake rates compared to other countries is that a lot of the infrastructure hasn't yet been put in place. And we seem to be a very car centric, car dependent country. It is easier to get around by car than it would be by bike. And that can make cyclists feel unsafe and that they need specific cycling routes and safer cycling routes. We also found that there's a really unique opportunity for cycling where 40% of passenger kilometres that are travelled, they're actually for journeys under eight kilometres. But that is amazing. 40% of journeys are under eight kilometres. Um, so lots of potential for people to use bicycles to meet that demand. Uh, what needs to happen to encourage people to take those journeys on bikes moving forward? Safer cycling routes can be a great way to overcome the main barrier of cycling as a mode of transport, which is which is perceived issues with the safety and really getting a sense that you feel confident and safe cycling around town. Another point, and this again relates back to the safety, safety issue, having the opportunity to practice cycling in an urban or a town, like a town-based setting can be really helpful to get people used to the idea of cycling their frequent routes. So confidence and education is a huge part of helping people get their feet wet and feeling empowered to hop on the bike, save money and reduce their carbon footprint. And lastly, to our fourth and final letter, E for education. So CycleRight is a national cycle training initiative. It's produced and supported by the Department of Transport, Tourism and Sport the Road Safety Authority, and Cycle in Ireland. So I caught up with two instructors on the course in Tremor County, Waterford, as they delivered a cycle safety training course for primary school students. I also chatted with a teacher in the school and a young student who took part in the course. So it's Monday. What date do we have now? It's 20, 21st. 21st of March. We're here in the Wales School of Tremor, um, and we're about to begin our fourth lesson with fourth and fifth class. Um, Before we go out on the road next week. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's we've we've taken them through a lot of the stuff like from very basic cycling and and doing uh, bike checks and clothing checks and helmet checks onto side roads, turning rights and lefts, and using roundabouts. I you know kids being kids, they're not going to take up every detail. Girls are probably a little bit more receptive than the boys, uh, but certainly they learn to be a lot safer on the road. And what we really drum into them is about letting people know what they're doing, but more importantly than that, looking around them all the time. Mm. Yeah, basic observation and awareness is the most important thing, I think. The, the lifesaver look, as Dermot used to call it, mm. very important. But yeah, as Niall said, the kids—they're young kids. 
they're excited you know they're not going to take every little detail that we're saying to them in they just want to cycle around and have fun in the yard but if they can pick up small little tips and tricks that we've been teaching them throughout the five weeks such as being ob- observant aware of all all that's going on around you not just in front of you but what's going on behind you is vitally important when it's being a cyclist on the roads and you've got the human aspect of it where er- nobody is equal so some kids are going to be better cyclists naturally than others and will take on stuff more and will be more aware of looking around them and being safer and indicating and all those sort of things but ultimately at the end of it all even though they don't always demonstrate it fully to us in the yard, you'll see them around the town in weeks to come and they'll all be doing things correctly. They'll be looking over their shoulders, taking the middle part of the road to turn right and just the things that have actually sunk in that we didn't think were necessarily going in at the time, mm. you know. So I think it's a great thing for them to do. Mm. So I'm holding my left hand position on the road approaching the junction, okay? But the first thing I do is, when I'm taking off, shoulder check, and have another look, indicate. I look again to make sure it's safe to come out towards the centre, okay? Because I want to end up in the right, the right of the line at the stop sign. Okay, so now any traffic that wants to continue on up here can do so and make a left turn without me blocking it. Does that make sense? Because I'm turning right here, I'm on the right-hand side of the line. If there's a car coming up or another cyclist or a motorbike or whatever, they can come up alongside me and turn left if they wish to do so. That makes sense? You all hear down yeah. there. You hear what's being said up here. So I look left and right, make sure both ways are clear, okay? When I see a safe gap in the traffic, what I do is I go straight out across the road and then make my turn. Who demonstrated last time, Lyle? Um, This young man did. My name's Isup. I'm in fifth class in Glasgow, Philip Byrne in Tremore. And I did the safety course in my school and we were learning about how to cycle safely and just practicing and yeah and what did you enjoy about doing it it was really fun I don't know it's not like it was work it's not like it was like like hard to do it was more fun than hard like to as in you're doing work it's fun better than being in the classroom yeah yeah, the kids love getting out on the bikes first off, but it's surprising how many of them actually aren't completely aware of how to handle themselves on the road. So they kind of come into the course thinking that they've got it all. And then week after week, you kind of see them picking up little tips and tricks and skills and stuff. And then they start to practice them and mm-hmm. kind of polishes up the way that they're actually using the road, you know. Mm-hmm. And has this, have you ran this with the kids in other years previously? Yeah, the course has run um, over the last number of years, um, bar COVID obviously, but yeah, every year you, you kind of get a five week, and every year you see the same kind of improvement in them, um, and then eventually they get out onto the road, um, and towards the end of the year they kind of do a, a school tour, kind of cycling tour, and um, put everything into practice. Mm-hmm. And do a lot of the kids cycle to school? The kids would cycle to school, um, yeah, most days. Um, a lot of them live fairly close to the school. Um, but there's definitely been a marked improvement in the amount of them cycling to school since they started the course. Mm-hmm. So you can see that it's kind of having a bit of a knock-on effect as well through the smaller classes, because it's only fifth and sixth that are doing it here. Um, but you can see it in the third class and fourth class now are starting to kind of take their lead, and yeah. they're taking their bikes to school. So it has a kind of a, an effect on the rest of the school, it's not just the higher classes, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing these things with the kids where you get them out of the classroom and back into the classroom, how does that... How do you manage that? You know, is it difficult to take a classroom or a yard of kids who are all excited and 
out going about cycling back into a room to do something else, you know? Yeah, they like they like getting out in the morning. It's great first thing as well because it kind of um, clears the cobweb. So if anything, they come back in more energised because a lot of the time, if you're starting straight off first thing Monday morning, you know, it kind of takes a half an hour to warm them up, um, getting into the swing of things. But once they've been out cycling for an hour, hour and a half, they're just, they're ready to go for the day. So, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of it gives a nice, nice start to their day as well as everyone else's. And is there, I guess, concerns or worries that the school would have at a broader level around kids cycling in and different things? Are these conversations you have around how kids get to school and how you can work with the parents to make it effective or, or you know, easy for people? Yeah, the school, the school every year have a kind of conversation in terms of um, transport to school. So we have uh, a kind of initiative in the school whereby we kind of encourage them to walk or to cycle to school. But that being said, that brings with it then its own concerns in terms of how they actually use the road and when they're coming in the roads itself are hectic enough but even when they get into the car park of the school like it's a constant flow of traffic you know there's never a kind of a for about half an hour there's a constant stream of cars coming through so we've always kind of tried to bring this on board so that we're sure that they're using the roads the best way that they can you know and that they're coming in as safe as they can and that was Evan Boyle, a researcher with the Maori Research Centre. You can find out more from Maori on Spotify. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes for you, as always. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. We're back again next Friday on RT Radio 1 Extra. And of course, you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player. Until then, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for listening. Take care. Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.